You know, we are born into this world like actors put on a stage and we have no idea what the play is about. Uh, the first thing we notice is the stage is huge. It's the size of the universe. Uh, the, the observable volume of the universe is 10 to the power 26 times bigger than the size of our body. And uh, we are definitely not at the center of the stage. At the same time, the play has been going on for 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. We just came at the end. Clearly the play is not about us. So one thing to do is look for other actors and ask them what the play is about. But the, it, it's clear that the message the universe is sending us is don't feel privileged. And we keep hearing that because we thought that we are privileged. We thought that we are at the center of the universe. Then we found out that we are not. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan. And welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone and welcome back to After Office Hours. Today we have a really exciting episode for you guys with Dr. Avi Loeb. Dr. Loeb is an astrophysicist at Harvard University who has authored nearly 700 research articles and four books. Most recently, he published a best-selling novel entitled Extraterrestrial. Yeah, we'll put a link to where you can get Extraterrestrial in the description of this episode, and I highly recommend you guys check it out. Yeah, Dr. Loeb's also in charge of a number of really cool initiatives at Harvard, including being the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation and the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative. Yeah, so as you can hear, Dr. Loeb has a lot going on. He's involved in a lot of really cool programs and initiatives, and which you guys will hear more about in the episode, and I hope you guys enjoy. Dr. Loeb, thanks so much for sitting down to have this conversation with us. It's a great honor and pleasure to be able to speak with you. Um, thanks for hosting me. You have a keen interest in philosophy and have mentioned uh, multiple times being an avid reader of philosophers like Sartre and Nietzsche. It seems to me that philosophy lends itself quite well to being an astrophysicist and in general, just contemplating our place in the universe. Did your love of either of these fields influence you to pursue or learn more about the other? Well, no, I got into astrophysics by uh, chance. I was born in Israel uh, on a farm and was mostly interested in philosophy, as you pointed out. But then uh, uh, it's obligatory to serve in the military at age 18 in Israel. And um, physics was closer to philosophy for me than running in the fields with, with a gun attached to my uh, back. And so <laughs> I went uh, into physics and then uh, initiated a project that was funded by the U.S., by the Star Wars uh, initiative of President Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s. And uh, that brought me to Washington, D.C. And in one of the visits, I visited the, the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where they offered me a five-year fellowship uh, when I finished my military service after, um, as long as um, I um, switched to astrophysics, that was the condition. And uh, I did that um, uh, with the hope that I'll get back to philosophy one day, or that was always uh, plan B for me. And then uh, I got a faculty position at Harvard, and uh, I wasn't too worried about getting tenure because I could always go back to the farm where I was born. And, <laughs> um, and then I got tenure. So that, at that point, I realized I'm married to my 
to, through an arranged marriage to uh, <laughs> astrophysics, but it's actually, it could be my true love if, uh, since um, uh, in astrophysics, we address fundamental questions that used to belong to philosophy using the scientific method. And that makes me quite different from most of my colleagues who are uh, very focused on uh, a niche within uh, uh, astrophysics that matches their interests uh, since an early stage. And for me, it was more of a, a compromise that ended up being an opportunity. Um, and uh, uh, I established about uh, six years ago the um, Black Hole Initiative at Harvard, the, uh, which is a, a center for the study of black holes that brings together philosophers and scientists. And it was a way for me to close the circle uh, in some sense. And also through my work, I've published more than 800 scientific papers and about eight books. And um, I'm coming back to deep philosophical questions. And I must say that the, the broader view that I have definitely is a great benefit uh, because um, what happens when you dig very narrowly into a niche is that you can end up in the uh, bedrock. Um, you can't really dig farther than a certain limit uh, because um, everything that can be known is known by the time you end there. And uh, then you don't have anywhere to go. But if you have a broader view, then you can move from one subject to another with greater ease. And also it allows you to identify uh, the most exciting questions that you might want to pursue. That's fascinating. And, and along the same lines of coming back to philosophy and even maybe the arts, I, I saw a recent uh, Scientific American article where you wrote, uh, and this is a quote, both arts and sciences advance through open-minded iterations. The alternative of staying within traditional boundaries suppresses the exploration of new territories. And then you quoted Oscar Wilde saying, consistency is the last ref refuge of the unimaginative. Um, I, I love that. And I think very relevant to what you were just saying. Do you view your current research uh, as a sort of art form? Um, I know you were saying you're kind of circling back to philosophy. Um, Definitely. And uh, the one thing that happened to me over the past half year, which was quite unusual since uh, my book uh, was published, was that I had about 700 interviews and many of them were with um, audiences and, and participants that um, are not scientists. Um, and uh, some of them with, you know, uh, jazz musicians, with artists. And uh, I got to know people that uh, I usually do not meet. And uh, that allowed me to uh, notice that th there are some similarities between the arts and uh, creative work in the sciences where you're not sure uh, exactly um, how the process happens, but but um, uh, you know, ideas bubble up and you're going into territories that are a bit risky and uh, it's taking chances uh, on occasion and willing to think outside the box that, you know, that's common to both the arts and the creative process in science. And it's resisted by the mainstream in science. There is orthodoxy. You might think scientists are more open-minded because you know, they are supposed to be guided by evidence and not by prejudice. But um, I find many of my fellow colleagues to be uh, quite uh, strict about the way they think about. Uh, I can give you an example. I gave a, a lecture at the winter school in Jerusalem uh, 
uh, in January 2013 about a new frontier, uh, gravitational wave astrophysics, and um, it was to a student, to, to a bunch of students, and um, then uh, one of the other lecturers, who is 20 years younger than me, stood up and said, uh, 10 minutes into my talk, he said, how dare you waste the time of these students on a subject that will never be important throughout wow. their careers. Wow. And uh, it's recorded on video. And, and then what happened was that a, a two and a half years later, the LIGO experiment discovered the first gravitational wave source. <laughs> and uh, these students were still doing their PhD. So it just shows you how narrow-minded uh, was that particular uh, conservative astronomer that uh, felt the, the urge to stand up and tell me, uh, I was much more senior than he is, that this frontier of gravitational wave astrophysics will lead nowhere. And the Nobel Prize was awarded a few years later to this discovery. So right. um, if you have that kind of a response to a subject that is now considered to be one of the most exciting frontiers in astrophysics, you know, that, uh, what, what, what can you say about uh, even a smaller, um, uh, you know, projects? Um, um, and, and I have many other examples, including the discovery of exoplanets, the planets outside the solar system. Uh, there was a lot of resistance to uh, exploring new territories there. Um, and um, it just shows you that um, um, even in science, um, there is um, conservatism and dogma. Uh, just another anecdote is that um, um, I had a, there was a cover story in a, a Jewish Orthodox uh, magazine called Ami in New York City about uh, my recent book on um, the first interstellar objects that object that we discovered, the um, Oumuamua. And uh, a colleague of mine at Harvard, uh, when I mentioned it to him, Stephen Greenblatt, he said. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it looks like the Orthodox are more open-minded <laughs> to the possibility that Oumuamua might be a technological relic than uh, your colleagues. Wow. So uh, you have a situation where uh, an Orthodox religious community appears to be more open-minded than uh, a scientific uh, crowd and audience. And uh, that to me illustrates the problem we have in academia that uh, there is a lot of resistance, but I'm sure that it's even worse in the arts because there uh, it could be even more subjective as to whether you appreciate an artist. And we all know the story about uh, Vincent van Gogh that was uh, ridiculed at the time. And now his uh, picture paintings are being sold at the highest price in the art uh, market. And uh, he was regarded as a genius after his uh, suicide uh, because the uh, impressionists used um, his painting style. And uh, the, for every success story of this type, there must be a lot of stories of um, uh, innovation that was buried. You know, for mm -hmm. any baby that managed to be born, there are many babies that were not born because of this uh, resistance. And it's just unfortunate. And, but, but the creative process itself is very often not appreciated at the time because mm -hmm. it breaks boundaries. It's ahead of its time. So let's say for people who in fact do believe in the importance of creativity, but let's say in fields that are traditionally seen to be very technically demanding, like perhaps astrophysics or quantum mechanics, what advice would you have for people who maybe have a technical edge, but are finding the creativity side to be hard, perhaps because they learned about it later on in their careers or just having a hard time 
generating that creativity? Yeah, so um, I do think that young people um, have the ability to be even more creative because they have less baggage, uh, less constraints that are put <laughs> on them. And that's why I try to maintain my childhood curiosity. I, if you ask people that uh, knew me when I was young, they will tell you that they haven't changed much uh, from the time that I was a kid. Um, I only gained titles, but my approach is very similar <laughs> now. It's not a, an easy advice to give because um, very often young people are worried about their future, about their job opportunities. And as a result, they have to behave in a way that will satisfy selection committees. And my advice in this context is, indeed, you could try and satisfy selection committees if you want to calculate your, your moves properly. But, but once you have the freedom to be your own boss, one, once you can dictate or decide, about the path you want to take, you should take advantage of that and not be worried so much about your image, how many likes you have on Twitter, mm -hmm. but just be true to yourself because um, all, all that you see very often in terms of responses of people uh, may go away um, after a while uh, and the appreciation that you get uh, on a short time scale may not at all reflect the long-term impact of, of your work. And, that's why you should be true to yourself. You should have your inner compass, which guides you. And um, for example, in the context of science, it's um, evidence. You know, you should keep your eyes on the ball rather than on the audience. And the ball in the case of science is the evidence. And uh, that's why I don't care much how many likes I have on Twitter. And in the context of Oumuamua, that uh, very peculiar object that showed anomalies, I would only change my interpretation if there is new evidence that illustrates that I was wrong. And obviously, you know, it's a learning experience. Science is a learning experience. And uh, therefore, you know, I, I would be happy to admit that I was wrong if the evidence convinces me that way. But, but if not, if it's just colleagues uh, uh, repeating uh, some prejudice, uh, that <laughs> would never convince me. So you need to have some uh, sense of being stubborn, not having a thick skin and not worrying so much about what other people say uh, and being guided by a set of principles, not just arbitrarily, but by something that you feel strongly about. And that's in the case of science, you have the evidence to guide you, which is uh, really a, a very good anchor. But in the case of the arts, it's more um, a way that you view the world, you know, uh, uh, which is unique to you. Um, and, um, you know, Oscar Wilde also said uh, that you should be yourself because everything else is taken. So a lot of people try to imitate others and by that become more popular. But I think uh, a much better approach is to uh, pay attention to your strengths and um, your interests and and um, uh, your own colors, you know, try to be special, just like a seashell uh, on the beach that, uh, you know, has a special color, a special shape. Uh, what you notice on the beach is that after a while, the waves carry those seashells and they rub against each other. And then they break up into indistinguishable pieces because they lose their special color, you know, they, they become the, the grains of sand that we see on the beach. And, and that's what happens to people over time also. They become indistinguishable from each other because they rub against each other uh, through social media, through interactions, through paying attention to what other people say. And uh, then they become indistinguishable towards the end of their lives. And I just hate that. I mean, I think, you know, we lose 
uh, a sense of the excitement that we had as kids. We lose a sense of the uniqueness that we mm -hmm. carry with us by becoming indistinguishable from others. So I would very much encourage young people to maintain their uh, special colors. That's great. I, I love that advice. Stay, stay a seashell as long as possible or else you'll become sand. <laughs> um, so for, speaking of the evidence like you were talking about and of Oumuamua, let's dive right in. Um, many of your works in the past few years have been centered on an object discovered in 2017 called Oumuamua. Could you tell us a bit more about this discovery for our listeners who don't know um, and describe a bit about what makes it so, most so significant from your perspective? Yeah, so this was the first uh, object that we noticed near the Earth that came from outside the, the solar system. It was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii, a pan stars, and uh, was given the name Oumuamua, which means in uh, the Hawaiian language, uh, a scout. And uh, at wow. first, astronomers thought, oh, it must be a rock like all the rocks that we have seen before in the solar system. And then... Uh, Turns out that it wasn't like anything we've seen before. It didn't look like a comet because it didn't show any cometary tail. There was no gas or dust around it. And um, also it didn't look like uh, an asteroid, uh, a bare rock that doesn't evaporate when coming close to the sun uh, because um, it was pushed away from the sun by some force in addition to the force of gravity acting on it. And uh, that force that pushed it away um, uh, de declined inversely with distance squared. And uh, it looked to me as uh, being a result of a reflection of sunlight. That was the only other explanation I could give to it, uh, given that there was no evaporation of gas, there was no rocket effect that could act on this object. And for that, the object had to be very thin, uh, sort of like a sail. Uh, and nature doesn't make sales. Um, um, and uh, therefore, in a paper that uh, was accepted for publication in uh, the Astrophysical Journal Letters, um, we suggested with um, a postdoc of mine, Shmuel Bialy, that it may be artificial in origin. And that suggestion drew a huge amount of attention uh, from the public and was um, uh, had a lot of pushback from the scientific community. And the, in the subsequent years, um, there were other uh, attempts to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua. There were six of them, not just what I mentioned. I mean, the object also appeared to be most likely flat and um, uh, its brightness um, changed by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling. So that meant that it has a very extreme shape consistent okay. with the sail. And, also, it came from a special frame of reference and so forth. So there were, there were six anomalies that I talk about in my book, uh, Exoterrestrial, and uh, other astronomers tried to explain those anomalies in terms of a natural origin. And uh, they came up with um, explanations that all invoke uh, something we've never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, mm -hmm. a cloud of dust particles, or a, a piece of a bigger object. And all of these explanations had problems. Um, each of them had issues. And, but the point is that if it's nothing that we have seen before, then why not contemplate an artificial origin? And that was my suggestion. And in September 2020, there was another object that shared the, the qualities of Oumuamua that it had an excess push by reflecting sunlight and no cometary tail. And it was given the name 2020SO, discovered by the same telescope, uh, Pan Stars in Hawaii. 
And uh, then the astronomers realized, ah, it's actually a, a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 in a lunar lander mission. And it had thin wow. walls. That, that's why um, it had a large area for its mass. Uh, the yeah. thin walls allowed it to be pushed by reflecting sunlight. So even though it was not designed to be a light sail, but uh, it still exhibited the same qualities. And, and by the way, it's not clear to me that Oumuamua was designed to be a light sail. It could have just been thin for another purpose. For example, maybe it had a big receiver uh, that was supposed to collect the signals. Um, uh, and that's why it was thin and, and large. Assuming we are able to find conclusive evidence um, through Oumuamua, or you know, if we observe some other object that indeed there is another intelligent life form out there, what would you personally be most excited about investigating or pursuing or doing first? Yeah, so um, there is a very simple, this is not a philosophical question as to whether an object is uh, artificial or natural, because uh, all you need is a good uh, photograph of the object. Yeah. Uh, you can easily tell the difference between a rock and a, a piece of equipment. Right. And uh, so uh, there will be the Vera Rubin Observatory that will monitor the sky in a couple of years from Chile that would have much greater sensitivity to interstellar objects and could find one every month. And then if one of these objects looks as unusual, as weird as Oumuamua was, then uh, we can send a spacecraft with a camera that will pass near it by intercepting its trajectory and take a close-up photograph. And they say, uh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't need to write the book if we had a photograph. And, right. uh, and, and uh, by the way, we do have a photograph, for example, of the asteroid Bennu, which uh, was visited by... Um, the, the mission OSIRIS-REx, and that mission landed on Bennu and took a sample that it will return to Earth in 2023. And um, in principle, you know, if we were to land on a piece of equipment from another civilization, you know, we could read off the label made on planet X and even uh, import the technology that may represent our future uh, to Earth. That could be worth a lot of money. Do you think there's something philosophical, something inherent in humans that makes us so resistant to um, believing that there's other intelligent life out there? I feel like, like, like you were saying, a lot of the other hypotheses that your colleagues suggested were also never seen before. Um, and it seems like people are willing to suggest anything else but other intelligent life. Do you think it's something human about us that we think that we're the only intelligent beings out there? Yeah, it's for the same reason that when you see some dirt, you tend to shove it under the rug, right? Uh, that's the tendency ah. of humans. So, I mean, um, humans uh, prefer to uh, stick to their prejudice, to their prior beliefs, to feel, you know, stay in their comfort zone, maintain their traditional thinking, uh, because anything uh, outside the box of uh, where they were uh, confined uh, prior to the anomalies being discovered, uh, anything outside of that will make them, cause them discomfort. But, you know, nature is under no obligation to make us feel comfortable. You know, the philosophers during the days of Galileo, they refused to look through Galileo's telescope because they knew that the sun moves around the earth. That started with 
the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle that said we are at the center of the world. And, you know, it flattered the ego of a lot of people and they were happy about this notion, we are at the center. But then came uh, Copernicus and Galileo and argued that maybe not, maybe the earth moves around the sun and mm -hmm. they refused to look through the telescope. They knew the answer. But reality doesn't care whether we ignore it. I mean, they put Galileo in house arrest. And by the way, I was also in house arrest because of the pandemic over the past year. But um, uh, and then um, uh, the Earth continued to move around the sun, you know, for the same reason uh, that if we close off the curtains uh, on our windows and we say, no, we don't have any neighbors. And we convince ourselves through Twitter and Facebook that this is ridiculous to even discuss and we make jokes about it. And you find a lot of people doing that right now, mm -hmm. these days, because of the upcoming UFO report from the Pentagon. They are just ridiculing this subject and there is a taboo on discussing it and Absolutely. anyone that speaks about it. So if you do that and you close off the curtains and don't look through the windows to check if you have neighbors, then that it wouldn't change uh, the fact that you might have neighbors outside, you know, that whether you see them or not doesn't really matter. Reality doesn't care whether we ignore right. it. And my point is scientific knowledge is always to our benefit because we want to get a better sense of reality uh, and act accordingly. But just keeping the blinders uh, is, is, is wrong. And especially for scientists to do that, I find it really strange because the public cares about this question a lot and the public funds science. So how dare the scientists ridicule this subject, push it to the side and say, we need extraordinary evidence for extraterrestrial technologies. Uh, and at the same time, the science community is not funding any search. So mm -hmm. obviously it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, <laughs> if you don't search. And by search, I mean, invest a billion dollars just like we invested in the search for gravitational waves. You know, the National Science Foundation invested the billion, $1.1 billion in the LIGO experiment. Uh, the search for dark matter invested roughly the same amount of money. The search for new particles in the Large Hadron Collider was $10 billion. We didn't find anything with the last uh, check. Um, and so, you know, searches that are serious uh, are at the level of a billion dollars. We are investing a thousand times less and then the scientists say, oh, there is no extraordinary evidence. Therefore, let's ridicule this subject. I mean, that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like stepping on the grass and claiming, look, the grass doesn't grow. <laughs> no, and it, it's clear from the way you're speaking that you value the trade of humility, perhaps not only for conducting research, but you know, as a general principle for just having your life outlook. Do you think your sense of humility has increased your love of studying phenomena in space? And would you, on the, the converse side, would you say being an astrophysicist has made you more humble at all? Yeah, definitely. Studying the sky for several decades made me more humble. The thing that made me humble is the recognition also that we live for such a short time. You know, we are born into this world like actors put on a stage and we have no idea what the play is about. And um, the first thing we notice is the stage is huge. It's the size of the universe. Uh, the, the observable volume of the universe is 10 to the power 26 times bigger than the size of our body. And uh, we are definitely not at the center of the stage. At the same time, the play has been going on for 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. We just came at the end. Clearly the play is not about us. 
So one thing to do is look for other actors and ask them what the play is about. But the, it, it's clear that the message the universe is sending us is don't feel privileged. And we keep hearing that because we thought that we are privileged. We thought that we are at the center of the universe. Then we found out that we are not. We were, some people were disappointed, refused to accept that, didn't look through the telescopes, but that didn't change the fact that we are not. Uh, and then other people still claim that we are the only intelligent species out there because it's very unlikely for anything as unusual as us uh, to exist. I think it's arrogant, you know, because when I looked at my daughters when they were young at home, they tended to think that they're the smartest in the world and that the world <laughs> centers on them. And then when we brought them to the kindergarten, they met other kids that might be smarter than they are. And then they got a sense of humility. And obviously they would have preferred to stay at home and maintain their illusion. So in a way, the people that um, respond, and that includes scientists that respond to the question, uh, are we the smartest kid on the block with the answer? Yes, very likely, or give me extraordinary evidence and I will take that as a default for now. Uh, those people are just behaving like the, uh, my daughters before they matured. And um, I, I take exactly the opposite view. I, I adapt the view that, you know, the, the default is that we are not special. We are not unique. That most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And things like us existed many times over long before we came to exist. So we are just like ants on a sidewalk. That's why nobody cares about us. That's why nobody pays special attention to us. You know, uh, it's, we, we need to approach the universe um, from a, a sense of humility that we, we want to figure out what's going on without assuming that we play an important role or that we are privileged in any way. I like your analogy specifically about being actors in a play that we don't know, you know, we don't know the subject of. It reminds me of an analogy that Feynman made about you know, he described the universe or just the laws of nature as a game of chess. And we just don't really know the rules to begin with, but we transiently see like different parts of the board, but we can only see like a small part of the board at any given time. So that's just reminded me of that. Right. And the other thing to keep in mind is that if your field of view is very narrow, if you always look down at your environment, if you close yourself off at your home, then obviously you can feel that you, you are a central player but you have a very narrow view and you can decide to close yourself and just worry about what happens around you. But guess what? Even if you get your food through the front door, uh, what happens in Wuhan, China will uh, eventually affect you. So the fact that you don't know about it doesn't prevent the rest of the world from affecting you. You know, the dinosaurs did not have astronomy. They just uh, ate grass, <laughs> they had huge bodies and they were very proud of themselves dominating their immediate environment. And then 66 million years ago, there was a giant rock the size of uh, Manhattan Island that hit the ground and tarnished their ego trip abruptly. <laughs> and uh, uh, that is an important lesson that, you know, if you just look down, if you just narrow your view, you might be happy for a little while, uh, be very arrogant because you accomplish things things in your immediate uh, territory but uh, in the big scheme of things you're not that impressive yeah absolutely and then along the same lines of us living on this long going play for billions of years where we don't know the start point and the end point 
the I guess probability probabilistically speaking for other forms of life out there the chances of them being at the same I guess evolutionary point uh, that we humans are on earth us finding other human-like organisms is, is unlikely as well do you do you like to ever think about the possibility of what the post-human forms of life would look like yeah so that that's a, an excellent point that in fact uh, the window of opportunity for us to have a conversation with equals uh, is quite short because right. we developed radio technology over, over the past century. And that's a small fraction. That's one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe and, or, or the age of the sun. And um, so um, that means that the, if the, that mode of communication is only available for us for about a century, then uh, this is called the great filter. We have a, a small chance of finding another civilization exactly at the same stage. Uh, it's also possible that other civilizations, once they become more advanced than we are, as you noted, they uh, transform into being dominated by equipment that has, for example, artificial intelligence uh, superseding uh, natural intelligence, you know, that we in the distant future, there will be uh, equipment that we send into space that has uh, intelligence uh, that is not biological in origin and therefore the most likely thing for us to encounter is actually that kind of equipment it's not the uh, living creatures that started the process and uh, I think that's the most likely scenario actually so talking about um, equipment that flies in space or even visits earth is you know, actually the most relevant thing for, for us to consider. And I call that space archaeology and trying to search for such uh, relics. Uh, because in the past 70 years, we've been looking for radio signals. And that's just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be alive. Most cultures may be dead by now, most civilizations, because they predated us. But um, we can search for the relics that they left behind, just like we do archaeology on Earth. And that, to me, sounds like a much more fruitful uh, investigation. And uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is um, um, something that I called in one of my Scientific American articles, Noach's uh, spaceship. Uh, we are all familiar with the, the biblical story of uh, Noach's ark, yes. uh, where he tried Noach's tried to save uh, the animals from the great flood and built an ark and put them there. And then, you know, we have a lot of risks. Um, currently, all of our, uh, all our, of our uh, eggs are in one basket and we <laughs> might want to produce uh, duplicates of things that we care about and send them into space so that if there will be a, a single point catastrophe here on Earth, as a result, for example, of an asteroid impact or self-inflicted wound like pandemics or climate change, that we will not lose everything. You know, when uh, the Gutenberg press came to exist, uh, it duplicated the Bible, made a lot of copies that previously were handmade and each of them was precious. But once there was mass production of many copies, uh, if something bad happened to one of them, it was not so uh, damaging. And so in the same spirit, we might want to send into space a spacecraft that carries, uh, that can duplicate what we, what we hold precious here on Earth. And it doesn't mean that we need to board the whales and the, uh, you know, uh, elephants and, and birds on that spacecraft that otherwise would 
have to be extremely big. What we can do is um, just um, put um, a, a large a computer system on, mm -hmm. on a CubeSat that carries all the information about the, the genetic making of life mm -hmm. here on Earth with uh, equipped with a 3D printer. And when it goes places, uh, it can use the raw materials uh, to produce synthetic life of the same type that we have here on Earth and, and basically replicate that. Wow. I call that the NOx spaceship. I love that. <laughs> how far do you think we are from that? I mean, how you mentioned that it's a good idea to probably create this idea of a NOx spaceship. How urgent, you know, obviously with the pandemic, right? I think the idea of a catastrophe, right? The single point catastrophe has become, you know, returned to people's minds. Do you think that we should do that urgently or? You know, what's the time scale in your opinion on that? Well, I, I think uh, the time scale uh, should be dictated by us having the technology to reproduce life. Um, okay. And uh, right now, there are some laboratories trying to develop synthetic life. Uh, one of them is at Harvard, led by uh, Jack Shostak, and he's getting close to, to accomplishing that, starting from chemicals and creating a living cell. So I would say in a few decades, we might have that capability. Wow. And then at the same time, artificial intelligence is growing at a frightening rate uh, that uh, would make very intelligent machines within a decade uh, that would be able to learn and, and uh, grow and make very intelligent decisions. So I would say when we have that, plus the ability to use 3D printers to create uh, synthetic life, combining the two and sending them to space would be the right time. And it could happen within your lifetime. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the decade, we already would have done that. Uh, as long as we do not engage in uh, the kind of uh, nonsense that we usually engage, where we fight each other, <laughs> try to feel uh, superior relative to each other. I mean, in my book, I, I talk about the fact that the human species is not yet uh, intelligent enough to be admitted to the club of intelligent species in the Milky Way galaxy. Because if you look <laughs> at it, we are wasting a lot of our resources on fighting each other, trying to feel superior. And the best example is in 1939, Winston Churchill, um, uh, wrote an essay about the search for extraterrestrial life and didn't have a chance to publish it because he was drafted to become the prime minister in England and fight the Nazi regime. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the Second World War wasted the $4 trillion just to the American economy and killed 75 million people worldwide, 3% of the world population, uh, and two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe. Um, six million Jews were killed. And just imagine if uh, all these resources were dedicated instead of for destruction, uh, that by the way was motivated by uh, racism, uh, it makes zero sense whatsoever for, for us to feel superior relative to other people for uh, their ethnic origin. Anyway, but it, that's what fueled it. If all of these resources were dedicated to a constructive measure, uh, trying to uh, address uh, Churchill's vision from 1939, we would have known the answer by now uh, to the question of are we alone? And this just shows, demonstrates to me that the human species is still not intelligent enough to be admitted to the club. And maybe that's one reason why we haven't heard from them yet. Right, <laughs> that's very humbling. <laughs> and speaking of these other life forms, and 
forgive me if this is a more, if this is a silly question and, and one that's more biochemistry oriented, but do you think there are other life forms, regardless of how advanced they may be, that could be guided by principles that are completely disparate from our own, you know, such as like needing water to survive or us being carbon-based? Do you think that's possible at all? Oh, definitely. I mean, we don't know if life is possible um, in other fluids than water and in other forms. And uh, of course, the, the best way to, to go at it is to explore. You know, it's a fishing expedition. We, we don't know what kind of a fish we will get, mm-hmm. but let's look at the evidence out there. And the other thing we can do is uh, try to produce different forms of life in the laboratory. As I said, mm-hmm. synthetic life might be feasible. Uh, at first, we can try forms of life that we find here on Earth in the fluid of water that we find here on Earth. But then we can expand uh, the search into other uh, forms of life that are quite different and see whether there are multiple paths to life. And that will expand our imagination. Uh, And uh, of course, um, life could be shocking to us when we find it on another planet because it could be very different than here on Earth. Um, For example, most of the stars emit uh, infrared light, not visible light. And uh, if there uh, are creatures there, they would have infrared eyes. And I asked students in my class if they know of any creature on Earth that has infrared eyes. And one of the students found a, a shrimp with uh, uh, the eyes looking just like ping pong balls connected with cords to the head of the shrimp. And uh, it looked like an alien to me. Uh, but the, <laughs> in general, I, I think um, we should not assume anything. And we're likely to find something completely unexpected. But I think first we will find the equipment before we find the creatures. Fascinating. So you're mentioning sources of detection and sensors. Rohan and I are both engineers, so we're both very interested in imaging and instrumentation. Uh, One of the first things that comes to mind when discussing objects like a muamua and being able to detect other astronomical objects is what kind of equipment is used to visualize them, given that our ability to detect something and to verify something is only as sure as the equipment, uh, the precision of the equipment that we're using. Could you tell us a bit about the the current technology um, that is enabling us to detect, let alone see, uh, visually see and know so much about objects that are millions of miles away? Right. So we are using telescopes, the, the same telescopes used to find astronomical sources. And Um, We should look for anomalies, things that do not match uh, what we expect from natural sources. And for example, we have uh, flashes of radio waves that are called uh, fast radio bursts. And um, it's not yet uh, fully resolved as to whether these flashes are a mixed bag and whether any fraction of those flashes may originate from Uh, some transmitters that are uh, artificial in origin, and uh, we are still exploring those flashes. And uh, Oumuamua looked very strange, and um, we should look for more objects from interstellar space that look strange like it. Um, uh, Then, um, you know, there is, um, of course, one should always keep in mind that a very advanced technological civilization would, would look like magic to us. It's just mm-hmm. like showing a cell phone to a caveman and the caveman is used to playing with rocks and would think <laughs> that the cell phone is just a shiny rock. Right. Um, so um, um, w- when we see a technology that represents our future 
even a thousand years from now or a million years from now, it would look like magic to us. And in fact, if you, th- you know, if we imagine our technology is able to produce life in the laboratory, or maybe even able to produce a baby universe in the distant future, you know, these are notions that were assigned to a divine entity, to God. So a very advanced technology could look as miraculous as an approximation of God to uh, humans. And right. that's something to keep in mind. Um, you know, um, we might at some point develop technologies in the distant future that um, uh, are so advanced that in the past only the, such uh, acts of creation were only assigned, if you look at religious texts, to God. And eventually we will be able to master them. So. Uh, if we might be able to do that in our future, uh, a civilization that is a billion years more advanced than us may have developed it already and may have that right now. And when we witness that, it would look magical to us. So we should, now the only reason we might not see such things is if we are not ready to search for them. You know, Mm -hmm. if, if you don't search for wonderful things, you will never discover them. And that's my main complaint about the mainstream uh, mm-hmm. in academia right now, that pretty much uh, you're supposed to anticipate what you find when you apply for grants, uh, for funding. Yeah. Uh, NASA asks you to forecast what you will discover in year one, year two, year three. And the selection committee looks at your proposal and based on what you are expecting to find, gives you the money or does not give you the money. That's the wrong metric. Right, it's backwards. <laughs> uh, you, want, you want to allow people to explore new territories where things are not expected uh, and, uh, and make discoveries because that's what you know a learning experience is all about. Now, uh, I should say that uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies uh, in the U.S. will deliver a report to Congress, and um, uh, it's about unidentified aerial phenomena. And uh, <laughs> of course, the scientific community ridicules the possibility that maybe this is something unusual. Uh, but one thing is clear that the, based on the leaks from the report, that at least some of the objects that will be uh, mentioned in the report are real, uh, at least according to the US government. So that's an extremely important statement that some of the objects might be real. Because if they are real, you might think, oh, maybe these are real objects that entered our airspace and are a matter of national security. They belong to other nations. If that was the case, if they belong to other nations that are trying to spy on us, on the US, then uh, the government would never release uh, that information because it will just act on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that they are releasing this information implies that they suspect that these objects behave in a way that cannot represent human-made technology, okay? Mm -hmm. So if that is the case, if they are real and they do not represent human-made technology and we know (laughs) the limits of our technology, then there are two uh, remaining possibilities. Either there are some natural phenomena you know, that's mm-hmm. something that happens in nature that we sure. don't fully understand, or they're extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. Now, either way, I argue it's interesting. And science, it, it means that the subject should move away from being the talking points of politicians and administrators dealing with national security 
it should move from that realm to the realm of science. Uh, it's uh, something that scientists should engage in trying to clear up the fog. Because if you have the report saying, we don't understand the nature of these objects, then that will fuel um, speculations in the public. The public, the general public would like to know what these are. And if the scientists ridicule the subject and say, oh, forget about it. It's nothing to do with extraterrestrial. It's ridiculous to even consider that. And let's uh, move on and do business as usual. Then uh, this subject will remain unclear and the speculations will continue. That's not a healthy situation in the 21st century. You know, we should use science to clear up the fog. We used science to find a vaccine to COVID-19, which is amazing, right? Because it was based, it's a synthetic chemical that was produced synthetically in the laboratory, not a weakened virus, uh, which demonstrates that we fully understand the scientific uh, background of this virus and we could find a solution to it based on our scientific understanding and manufacture it and, and get the desired immune response. That's an amazing success story of modern science that should be celebrated. And in much the same way, if there is a mystery about these objects that the, public's, the public cares about, uh, then scientists should come to the rescue and figure out what the nature of these objects is. If, if you were say involved or advising a governmental agency like NASA about how to either, you know, restructure their funding or just, as you mentioned, restructure the way they award these grants, what would you want to do? Well, and, 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 share, and share their data and findings. Right, so the, uh, the first of all, um, the scientific research should also echo the interest of the public because the public funds science through uh, paying taxes. And, um, and so if the public is extremely curious about the question, are we alone? Are we the smartest kid on the block? There is no way that the scientific community, the mainstream of the scientific community can ridicule this subject and ignore it. Okay. Uh, I think if we have the instruments to address this question, this subject should be funded quite heavily so that we can make progress on our understanding. And in the context of unidentified aerial phenomena, there is a very simple prescription for making progress, and that is deploying state-of-the-art cameras and uh, uh, audio sensors uh, that are much better now than they used to be decades ago when the first reports came out. Uh, so even if the images were fuzzy decades ago, now they can be crisp. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can just, instead of relying on sensors that the government uh, used, which are presumably classified, and that's why the data is not fully revealed. You know, right. it must be just the tip of the iceberg because the data was obtained mostly by uh, classified instruments. We don't want to reveal our ability in getting such data, so we will not release uh, or declassify most of the data. Uh, so forget about it needs to move from the government to the scientific uh, arena where you can collect the data with scientific instruments in an open way, in a transparent way. It will say nothing about the sensors that the government employs. You can just deploy those cameras in the same locations or in other locations and search for unusual phenomena. And uh, that should not be a very expensive experiment to do. And I think that's the way to go rather than argue about the meaning of those reports that came from military personnel uh, scientists should be engaged 
in, a, in experiments that try to search for unusual phenomena and uh, figure out their nature. And I'm willing to lead such a, a process. And uh, I don't think the funding level uh, is too expensive. I think it's relatively straightforward. Um, and the, the search is different from uh, what the astronomy community is usually doing because astronomers are looking at very distant sources, very distant right. objects. And here you're talking about things hovering just above the ground uh, and they're moving much faster uh, across the sky. There are different types of sources. Uh, so uh, it, it needs to be a different line of investigation, but we can do it. And in the same way, I, I suggest also searching for technological relics in space or technological signatures. And I have a new textbook coming out at the end of June with Harvard University Press called Life in the Cosmos. And it describes the background for the kind of research that one can do. Oh, well, looking forward to reading that then. <laughs> Completely. So um, along the lines of, you mentioned that science is funded by the citizens, right? It's fund funded through taxes, um, and we should have a say in the science that is done. Unlike many of your academic colleagues, you're constantly publishing articles in magazines like Scientific American and writing books that are made for um, interested individuals in the general public to enjoy and learn from. What's your drive behind spending so much time and effort in working to educate in, in the general public in matters of science and astronomy? Well, frankly, I think that the public has its heart in the right place. And I don't feel elevated. I don't feel that uh, being a tenured professor or a director of centers at Harvard University puts me on a pedestal. I really feel that I'm at the same level as any other uh, person. And uh, I'm trying to explain what I'm doing on questions that are of interest to the public. And, you know, for me, science is a way of life. Um, it's not uh, an occupation that, uh, whose purpose is to demonstrate that I'm smart. You know, <laughs> Aristotle demonstrated that he's smart by constructing this sophisticated model where we are at the center of the universe and there are spheres around us. And um, that looked very sophisticated, but it was wrong. So right. using fancy math in the context of string theory, the multiverse, extra dimensions, could they demonstrate that you are very skillful in mathematical gymnastics and that you are smart and you can get uh, honors and awards from your fellow scientists, but it might not be relevant for society. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's really important that we address questions that are relevant. You know, if Oumuamua was a technological relic, you don't need uh, extra dimensions to discuss it. You don't need the sophisticated math. It's just a very simple conceptual point uh, that will change right. our lives. And so my point is demonstrating that we are smart is not really the objective of science. Uh, science is a learning experience about nature. It's a dialogue with nature. We have to pay attention to anomalies, to things that do not line up with what we expected because we can learn something new. And we, can, we need to approach it from a modesty point of view and, and not assume that we know the answer in advance, like the philosophers did in the days of Galileo. So uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, make it a monologue where they demonstrate <laughs> that they are smart, they don't listen to nature. And it's all about mm. maintaining their image, not taking risks, not putting skin in the game because they don't want to be proven wrong. And having a lot of herd mentality, a group think that, you know, they keep, 
patting the backs of others so that others would help them uh, get honors and award. And, and that is not, I mean, this is not the, the objective. And uh, I don't really care how many likes I have on Twitter. That's not my objective. <laughs> Uh, and I do feel that communicating to the public what we do, I mean, is important, even if uh, most of the time scientists uh, are doing work in progress where they don't know the full answer right. uh, because we don't have enough evidence. But if the public cares to get uh, these updates, we should give it to the public and not pretend that we only give answers when we know the uh, the, when we have enough evidence where we know for sure that this must be the answer. Because many, on many occasions when we do that, when we have a press conference, when we announce an important result and now the scientists figured out something, then a week later or a month later, it turns out, oh, it's not quite true. Actually, <laughs> there are some caveats. So what's the point, you know, if, <laughs> if yeah. the emperor has no clothes, if, if, <laughs> if, if the, it's always a work in progress, why pretend that we know more than we actually know? And, you know, when, when uh, there are uncertainties, we can explain it to the public, the public will understand, and then it will increase the confidence the public has in the scientific process because the public will be exposed to it. So I feel strongly that, you know, I, when, when a, a plumber comes to fix a, a problem uh, at home, uh, I, I try to help the plumber and figure out, you know, based on the clues that we have where, uh, what the solution might be. And, and I don't see it any different than trying to figure out the solution to a scientific problem. It's exactly the same process of uh, using the clues that you have to find the, the best interpretation. And then if it solves the problem, we know that we understood something. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I, I think what you're saying is spot on just because I think it gives the wrong impression of the scientific process to the general public when we only report and have these big announcements when there is a set in stone, we have this discovery um, and doesn't, doesn't really show the, the process and the failures along the way, right? If you go into, like you're saying, if you go into an experiment knowing the, the result, you didn't really learn anything. You didn't really do an experiment. Um, right. At the same time, the other uh, side of it, the other face of it is if the public cares so much about unidentified objects then the scientists would immediately uh, dismiss it and, and move away from it just to uh, uh, defend science which in much the same way as uh, the hypothesis uh, that uh, the virus came from a lab leak was uh, ridiculed by scientists uh, a year ago. Uh, that was the consensus. Uh, uh, people rejected it just because Trump uh, suggested it. They said, no, it must be wrong. And now Biden is embracing uh, an investigation into this question. So uh, my point is that, uh, you know, many times the people that claim to defend science mm -hmm. uh, are those that hurt science. Right, I agree. And I was gonna use the pandemic as another example. I think that was a, gave us evidence that the scientific community really needs to do a better job at explaining the methodologies um, in both how much we understand and how much we do not understand. Um, and I think that would, cause things to move a lot smoother in the future. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, having multiple interpretations is not a weakness. Right. It's just admission that, you know, we don't know everything at, at all. Most of the time we don't know. And uh, again, it's a sense of modesty, but if you want to elevate your ego and uh, feel uh, that, you know, that 
you are better than you actually are, then you obviously are seeking to put some makeup and always look good even when you have pimples. <laughs> <laughs> and in the spirit of the wonderful collaboration that the pandemic kind of spurred, right, specifically in virology and molecular biology, you know, science and academia inevitably contain competition, right? That on one hand can lead to what in some senses is a distraction from what people consider purely curiosity-driven research or purely fundamental research. But some argue that the same competition can actually help drive discovery at a fast pace. You yeah. know, what is your perspective on the role of this competitive spirit and how do you balance it with perhaps something like having that childlike curiosity for basic discovery? No, I think competition is great. Uh, it helps in sports, obviously. I mean, when you have competing teams, they do better. Uh, if one team has uh, is much more superior than everyone else, then they don't do as well. Uh, so, and that's true of in, in science. Uh, having competition is a very good thing, as long as the the interaction between the competing uh, groups or or individuals is professional. But uh, what I don't like is a situation where there is bullying of uh, alternative views uh, that is not professional, where uh, the attacks are personal and uh, where um, the arguments used are made by people who are not caring about the details. They just want a particular answer. Mm -hmm. So they don't, for example, in the case of Oumuamua, they don't try to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua, but just say, oh, it must be a rock. And then when someone suggests an explanation, they immediately jump and say, yes, that is the explanation. When someone <laughs> else suggests... So, I mean, that is very superficial and uh, resembles bullying in a kindergarten, you know, where uh, just because <laughs> a kid is different, a lot of other kids bully that kid. And you don't want that in science. You want to maintain diversity of opinions because that's very healthy. And sometimes the kid that looks really different is the one that says the right thing. You know, Einstein was in the patent office saying the right things. And it took some time, but eventually the community realized that. But if you were to adapt the view, uh, you know, in today's social media, he would have been canceled. Uh, think about uh, mm. Socrates. Uh, he was advocating for a dialogue, for doubting uh, uh, important figures in uh, the society of Athens, Uh, and uh, he was uh, accused of uh, betraying the gods that the rest of the uh, people in Athens believed in. And then and they made him drink poison. <laughs> and was forced to drink poison. To be, uh, He was put in jail. And uh, today, uh, Socrates uh, would have been cancelled in the Athenian social media. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that would have been equivalent to him being forced to drink poison. And I just say that this approach is not the right one. Uh, you should engage in a dialogue where you try to explain professionally why one view is better than the other and let the evidence sort out the truth. Uh, it's not about us fighting each other on a personal level. You know, it's an intellectual debate where we are trying to figure out the correct interpretation and the verdict should come from the truth, from the evidence, uh, you know, in much the same way as Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, sorted out the explanation. Uh, when he came to a murder scene or a crime scene, uh, he would lay out all the possibilities on the table and then rule out one by one based on the clues. And whatever remained must have been the truth. And that's the way that a detective works. That's the way that scientists should work. 
rather than uh, being personal ab about the process. It's actually quite terrifying when you think of all of the incredible figures throughout history who had really groundbreaking, world-shattering work. Uh, Galileo, Socrates, you're saying Aristotle, so many of these figures who whose work really changed the course of humanity um, were so ridiculed and a lot of them murdered for for just their their ideas. Yeah, there is, uh, of yeah. course, another example of Giordano Bruno that argued that maybe other stars are just like the sun and therefore other they have planets around them just like the Earth and therefore there should be life on those planets. And then the church decided to burn him on a stake because they said, well, if there is intelligent life out there, then uh, those creatures could have sinned. And then you need to produce a, a lot of copies of Christ that will save all these uh, creatures and that didn't sound right to them to produce billions of copies of Christ in order to save all these creatures on other planets therefore they said he must be wrong and they it's they said it's heresy and they burned him uh, I, I remember reading about this I, I, I thought it was kind of comical the way the church formulated this like logical formulate proof of <laughs> if there are other other living things then there must be um, and so on <laughs> yeah so the point is that uh, you know, we should be arguing about what the evidence shows and uh, not about convictions. And by the way, religious, uh, I mean, science is not necessarily in contradiction to religion, because if religion focuses not on the physical world, but focuses on the meaning of the world. So it's just like, you know, science, when seeing a building, will try to figure out what the bricks are that make this building and how they are put on top of each other. Whereas religion, we try to ask, uh, we try to ask the question of the metaphysics uh, of what is the purpose of this building and who, you know, what was the blueprint? Was there a meaning to, to this building? Uh, and these are different questions. And, uh, but once religion intrudes into the territory of science and tries to argue, no, there couldn't be life on other planets around other stars, that's a dangerous move. Mm -hmm. Is there a trend that you see among your colleagues, either within the field of astrophysics or elsewhere? Do you find most of them to be religious and sort of see this distinction that you have in terms of, you know, exercising religion in their own lives while also having the scientific beliefs that they do? Or do a lot of your colleagues and researchers believe that they're incompatible? No, I do think, well, in the American culture that a lot of... Uh, people are religious. Uh, it's not true necessarily in, in Europe or, or in Israel where majority are not religious because of the history where they, uh, the long history with religion. And the US is a relatively young country. And even though uh, there is a separation of religion and state, I find it surprising, but, but that's a fact that a lot of the Americans are religious now. Uh, what happens among scientists is that they put it aside. They put their private lives, their cultural beliefs uh, aside, and they just focus on the technical details of a particular niche that they excel in. And th these are completely separate uh, uh, components in the way they think. Uh, and they, these compartments are not mixed. And they live side to side, and they never uh, try to figure out the bigger picture in that context. So you know, it's just like, you know, athletes say, if you imagine an athlete that runs 100 meters, you know, to be the best in the world, you don't really need to understand 
what happened before the Big Bang. You just run this distance at <laughs> faster speed. Uh, that's pretty much it. You can have compartments in your thinking where you just to, uh, professionally, you just excel in whatever you know, measure is being used in that uh, profession. And then at the same time, you maintain your own beliefs. And there is no contradiction between running 100 meters uh, fastest and uh, having religious beliefs. So you can keep them side to side. And that's what happens with a lot of scientists. They don't wonder about a comprehensive picture that makes science and religion uh, consistent with each other. I mean, the way Spinoza tried to do that, uh, he basically associated God with nature itself. And um, that was consistent with the worldview of Albert Einstein also, that you know the laws of nature are... God. And, you know, to me, um, the order that we find in the universe is quite amazing in the sense that um, the laws of physics that we uncover in laboratory experiments seem to hold throughout the universe. And it's not something to be taken for granted because we could have had a chaotic universe. When I see uh, the rooms of my daughters in the morning, uh, they're <laughs> organized. And why would the universe be more organized than the rooms of my daughters? Or even if you uh, look at the um, society, you know, we uh, decide about laws and a lot of people disobey them. Uh, and uh, uh, why would every atom in the universe follow the laws of physics that we uncover in laboratory experiments. That's uh, quite remarkable if you think about it. Most scientists would not think about it. They'll just say it's a fact, you know, that uh, we accept this fact and move on. But to me, it's a sense of, it gives me a sense of awe and wonder about how beautiful the universe is. And you also mentioned earlier in our conversation how you kind of stumbled or you know, fell into the field of astrophysics sort of, you know, not fully intentionally. Do you think there's another field um, out there that, you know, if, if someone said you just can't study astrophysics anymore, that fascinates you that you would like to explore? Oh, sure. There are lots of them. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, six months ago, I became uh, a best-selling writer by writing uh, extraterrestrials. So I can easily see myself becoming a writer. Uh, I write every week to Scientific American and, and um, I write a lot. And um, you know, it's not my native language, English, but nevertheless, um, you know, I, I, when I get inspiration, um, the words come to me and uh, people enjoy my writing. So I could definitely make it a profession. Um, and right. then uh, I can imagine um, uh, going back to the farm and collecting eggs every afternoon the way I did uh, as a kid. Uh, that's a very different lifestyle, but it's relaxing being close to nature. Um, you know, at a young age, I could have become, I could have focused on sports because, you know, I was at the top uh, 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 fraction of a percent of uh, the population of students in my high school in terms of, I was at the, uh, among the top three uh, of the graduating uh, class and, uh, of a thousand students in my um, high wow. school. So I could have become uh, focused on sports or, or I was also, when I served in the military, they, they asked me if I want to be uh, recruited to a, a, an elite unit. Uh, and I decided not to pursue all of these uh, because they're short-lived. I preferred an in intellectual activity all along because of my love to philosophy. But I can easily, you know, I can become a coach for example, in soccer, or I can 
um, you know, I can do a lot of things that uh, would satisfy me. Uh, but uh, at this point in my life, I really feel that I enjoy what I'm doing. So I don't, you know, if Harvard University is willing to pay me a salary and keep me as a, you know, have tenure there. Um, I don't mind how many leadership positions I hold. I, I was the longest serving chair of the astronomy department for nine years. You know, that's, uh, that's about 15% um, uh, of the uh, lifetime, uh, the history of the astronomy department at Harvard. I, I was the chair. Wow. Um, and um, I also uh, uh, am the director of the uh, Black Hole Initiative, the Institute for Theory and Computation. I chaired the, the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies. I chaired the uh, Starshot Initiative of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. I have a lot of leadership positions, but I, you know, th these um, administrative roles are not really my goal in life mm -hmm. uh, because the creative work is what gives me pleasure. And when I'm relieved of any of these, like, for example, I left my position as department chair when the term ended um, uh, in July 2020, that uh, after nine years, uh, it was a relief for me because I had more time for creative work. And um, so I can easily move from one thing to another because I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a politician. I, uh, what you see is what you get with me. <laughs> and it was a miracle that I was actually quite successful um, in leadership positions, but I'm not restricted to that. And I can do a lot of different things uh, in life. And, but I enjoy the most creative work, be it in the arts or in the sciences. So I want to really quickly ask you a question about your writing. You mentioned um, you can you can see yourself becoming or being a writer as your, your main occupation. You've written your book now. Um, I've read many of your articles in Scientific American, and it's absolutely the the language is is absolutely beautiful. The way you describe a lot of these philosophical and scientific um, arguments, and the the fact that it makes it even more incredible is that it's not even your first language. Did you always see yourself as a writer? Is this a new thing that you took up at some point? Um, and how, how has that kind of changed um, your work in general? No, I, I, I didn't see myself as a writer. What happened was about a decade ago, I was asked to give a, a banquet a speech at a conference. And uh, for that, I mean, I decided to describe uh, uh, the importance of risk-taking, of innovation. And then uh, after that, uh, the feedback was so intense to my lecture that I decided to write it up as an essay, as a commentary to uh, scientific, uh, to nature, actually, Nature magazine. And after that, I wrote another essay a few years later, another one and so forth. And as time went on, I started to see uh, that writing is actually a skill that I can develop. And, and then came Oumuamua and um, I mean, I wrote uh, technical books, uh, textbooks in the meantime, but but um, with uh, extraterrestrial, that was the first uh, uh, attempt to write uh, a popular level book. And it went very well because it was based on my writings in Scientific American. And so now I pretty much master the technique. You know, once you know how to ride bicycle, you can ride them. <laughs> and um, uh, it's a skill that I acquired that obviously if I didn't have the talent at all, then I wouldn't be able to do it. But um, it's something I enjoy because you know, uh, in administration, in leadership, uh, not much is left uh, behind. <laughs> you know, people tend to forget what you did. They don't right. fully understand the circumstances. 
uh, they see it from their own perspective. Even if you're trying to help them, they don't always appreciate it. But with writing, something is remaining, you know, and, and it's really that nugget that, uh, and, and also you communicate with people that you never uh, would think uh, you would reach. And, you know, there was a woman from Malawi that wrote me that your book is great and that convinces me to perhaps uh, pursue astronomy. There was a woman from uh, Colombia in Latin America that wrote an undergraduate that said, uh, uh, reading about your work uh, changed my life. So I, I do touch a lot of a lot more people than the small pond that I was in to start with, with all all the all the fish that were there that felt very powerful and were controlling my psyche. You know the way I thought about myself. I now realize the world is so much bigger, and I can convey a message to so many more people and have so much more influence this way that uh, there is no way back. You know, I I will continue to write. And at the end of the day, we're all sitting here on this tiny rock floating in our galaxy in this massive universe. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we should just uh, behave like spectators, admit that we are, we, we are very limited in our abilities and just enjoy the show, you know, basically looking at things around us and learning from them. Not pretend anything beyond that because, you know, we will eventually die. So just enjoy the show while it lasts. That's all. That's my advice. Enjoy the show. I think that's wonderful advice. And, you know, on the subject of books, as we wrap up, of course, you've written many books, but um, would you recommend any specific ones? You know, if for perhaps a listener that has not read any of your books, is there one that you would recommend them reading first? Or are there any other books that you would also recommend? Well, I would recommend The Exoterrestrial, the, the latest book, um, that appeared at the end of January in the US and is translated to 25 languages, including Hebrew. A few weeks ago, it appeared in Israel um, and it became bestseller in many countries. So I would recommend that. And of course, um, there are other books, but um, if, if I, I have to recommend one, that will be the one. Amazing. And the last question we always ask our guests uh, is what are your coffee or tea habits? Do you uh... Like to drink coffee or tea? No, I, I don't drink coffee at all, but I do get uh, caffeine from dark chocolate. I get about, ah. I get half of my calories every day uh, from several bars of dark chocolate that I eat. Half of my calories wow. every day come from chocolate, dark chocolate. Wow. So in a way, I'm a, a, a chocolateholic. Uh, <laughs> but How dark? How dark is the chocolate? Oh, it's between... Uh, uh, 72% to 100%. I mean, oh, most wow, of the darkest. <laughs> most of it, I have uh, several brands that I'm, I'm consuming every day, and um, and um, I just love chocolate so much that I, <laughs> I, I did cut on other things that I used to eat, and the uh, half of my calories come from that. And uh, I'm on a low carb diet, but you can have that with uh, dark chocolate, not much sugar in it. Out of curiosity, how many how many bars of dark chocolate are, are equal to half of a daily calorie allowance? <laughs> oh, I would say uh, it's about we are talking about eight hundred to nine hundred calories that I'm getting from the chocolate. So that you can wow. just calculate depending right. on bar, but it's yeah. I would say it's uh, of the order of uh, two and a half bars or two, yeah, something like that. Uh, depends on the size of the bar, but it's quite a lot actually. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, it is. And I, and I jog every morning at 5 a.m. in the company of uh, ducks, uh, 
birds, uh, rabbits, and wild turkeys. Every morning since the pandemic started, it's really a great uh, fun because every morning I see something new, like a, a, a red bird that I saw the other day, or the sunrise looks different. Today, actually, I, I jogged at 5 a.m. and it started pouring. Uh, the rain started coming down very intensely, even though the app on my uh, Apple Watch uh, was showing that it shouldn't, you know, it should be very light rain and not significant. I was not dressed. I, I mean, I just had my t-shirt and, and pants and I ran in the pouring rain and I was completely swamped. But I really love nature, you see. So I, I enjoyed the rain falling on me for half an hour. And then I came home completely uh, soaked. And uh, after that, uh, you know, I dried up and went to my first interview of the day. So, uh, you know, every every day I have uh, at least uh, of the order of four interviews now. And I used wow. to have eight or so. Uh, over the past five months, I had uh, of the order of 700 interviews on, for podcasts, TV, radio, and newspapers. So it was really an unusual experience to go through all of this. Wow. So thank you for squeezing us into your busy schedule. And, and like you said earlier, for a different context, there's wonderful things out there if you are just looking for them. Um, yes. Uh, the, the, the world is really wonderful. The only reason you might uh, decide that you know everything or that you might feel depressed is because you don't look up. Nature Absolutely. is beautiful that way, in the words of uh, Jennifer Doudna. Well, actually, I, I would quote uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, who said that uh, we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. That's I think that's a perfect uh, closer. <laughs> so on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Lope, for taking the time to be on our podcast. We had a great time and a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I had a great time as well. Wow, that was a fascinating conversation that I feel we could have spoken for another three to four hours. Yeah, and I think amidst all that Dr. Lopez going on, I think it's really quite inspiring how much he's able to like focus his energy on educating the general public. For example, writing so much for Scientific American and just doing all those interviews. I mean, that shows real commitment. Yeah, for sure. And even further than that, I think his commitment to being open-minded, both in scientific endeavors and in just dealing with everyday life is absolutely essential. And a lesson that I think we could all learn from him. Yeah, and I think, you know, he, he's more philosophical than a lot of the professors I've met. And I think it'd be interesting for you know, applying those lessons to other fields, not just astrophysics and just, just what he believes about humility and about scientific research, about about having ideas that don't always go with the status quo. I think everyone can learn a lot from just that general scientific rationale. Yeah, I agree. I resonated with a lot of the ideas that Dr. Lope spoke about, and I wish I saw them more, I guess, in everyday academia circles. Yeah, and I'm really excited to read his book on the subject of the possibility of extraterrestrial life in the wake of the Oumuamua discovery. If you're listening, I hope you order it and read it. <laughs> yeah, we'll put the link, as I said in the beginning, we'll put the link in the description of this podcast. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. You can, if you want to hear more from us, if you're still listening at this point, you can follow us on Instagram at after double underscore office hours. We are on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and Google Podcast. Uh, you could just search after office hours. And we are also now on LinkedIn. If you guys are on the LinkedIn grind, you can search us on LinkedIn at After Office Hours and give our page a follow to stay up to date on all the new episodes we're posting and any other fun content we're putting out there. <laughs>